Life Christian Centre is a church located in the city of Adelaide. It is made up of people from different backgrounds and walks of life who have been transformed through a relationship with Jesus Christ. For more information, visit us online at www.life-church.com.au Today I want to speak to you on Jesus as our suffering servant. I could have chosen Jesus our sovereign Lord, that's kind of a second message connected to this, but I thought I'll just stick with Jesus the suffering servant. And I want to draw some thoughts from John chapter 19 and Isaiah 52, 53. I want to link them together. So, so stay with me and I trust that the Lord will, through his word and by his spirit, will reinforce something in you, confirm something or speak to you afresh. If you don't know Christ as your personal saviour, if you haven't crossed the line of personal faith, in other words, he's out there, but he's not inside. You know, he's a God that you respect because you're here. No one's here because they hate God and hate Christ. You're here because you respect him, but maybe you haven't crossed the line of personal faith where you have received him as your saviour, that you have an assurance that your sins are forgiven, that you have the gift of eternal life and that, uh, that, that it is well with your soul. And at the end of the service, I'd love to pray with you. If, if that's you and you haven't yet, maybe my, my thoughts today will help tip you over to say, okay, I'm ready to respond to Jesus Christ. So the suffering of Jesus and his death by his crucifixion is at the heart of the Christian faith. A crossless Christianity is a powerless Christianity. And the whole Old Testament points to Christ. It points to the cross of what was going to happen. It's the great dividing line of human history. And, uh, and the whole New Testament, really, when you think about it, explains the cross and its implications and why he rose from the dead and how the church started and the Apostle Paul's writings explain Christ, explain the cross, explain the resurrection, explain his continuing ministry. The whole Bible is about Jesus. And uh, he is the great theme. He is the one that shines from the scripture. And so uh, John chapter 19 and Isaiah 53, they, they are linked together. In John 19, we see the true king and his amazing self-giving love. Jesus enters into our suffering, folks, and becomes sin so that we might become the righteousness of God or be given a right standing with God, not based on anything that you can do, but based on who he is and what he has done through his cross of death. And out of that cross of death comes light and life and salvation, and it comes freely to all who would believe and receive him. So he truly is the suffering servant, willing to lay down his own will to do the Father's will and to secure your salvation. He didn't die because of anything that he had done. He died because of what we had done and we could not get out of the mess that we were in. We could not save ourselves. There's nothing you can do to save yourself. Only God can save you, and he did it through the sending of his son, Jesus. So in John chapter 19, verse 30, when he says, it is finished, those three words, he, he says this on the cross before he gives up 
his spirit. In other words, the work is done. The price is paid. And Jesus was actually totally in control of his death. Some people don't really understand this. They think, oh, the Romans killed him. Now, we know the Roman authorities outworked the execution. But Jesus himself gave up his life. It wasn't the nails of the Romans and the ropes that held him on the cross. It was his love for you. It was his love for the world. He could have snapped his fingers and said, 80,000 angels could have come and wiped out the Roman Empire. And he could have set up his kingdom and said, let's... But he said, no, 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 there's got to be the only way by which humanity could be saved was that God himself had to take the punishment of our sins. And so when he says it is finished, he says the work is done, the price is paid. And the, the Roman executioner, the centurion, he went nuts. God, like he was absolutely gobsmacked. And he said, surely, surely this is the son of God. Surely this is a, a supernatural man because he says it is finished. Okay, and he's a strong 33-year-old carpenter. He's not a weak man physically. Men could be on a cross for two or three days. The purpose of crucifixion was slow punishment. Slow asphyxiation where a person would actually not be able to breathe. It was a horrible form of execution. So he's up there just for a little bit of time. And he says these amazing words from the cross. You know, you know the words of the cross. I did a series once on the words of the cross and, and even the word that he said to his mummy, you know, and, and he said, John, look after her. And he said, you know, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I mean, like, you think of that. He sees these horrible executioners. And if you've ever seen The Passion of the Christ, you know The Passion of the Film? I think Mel Gibson painted a picture of what those brutal executioners were like. They were brutal men. People that have to put people to death are brutes, okay? They're callous, hard-hearted. And, and so, so Jesus from the cross even sees something in their favour. He says they're dumb. They don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And he's really saying it to us because we put him on the cross because of our sins. So he's actually saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And, and he says, John, protect my mum. And one time he cries out to the Father, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The, the humanity of Jesus. Because the, the fear of being separated from his Father, of taking all the sins of humanity on himself. And then when he says it is finished, he goes, he dies. And they all look and go, what the heck is going on? He could live. He's like, and the centurion freaked out because he knew the power for a human being to willingly give up his own spirit and to choose the time of his death was miraculous. He knew it could only be God. And so the scripture says this in John chapter 10. He says, no one takes my life from me. I give it up willingly. I have the power to give it up and I have the power to receive it back again, just as my father commanded me to do. So he willingly went to the cross. He chose when to die to take away your sins. And that's what freaked out the Roman centurion at that particular time. 
Isaiah says these words in verse 11 of chapter 53. And quoting chapter 53, chapter 52, the, sec the last part of chapter 52 and the whole of chapter 53 is the most quoted section of the Old Testament in the New Testament. It is the great messianic statement that this amazing young prophet Isaiah paints a picture. He has a vision and he sees clearly that it's about Jesus. I think, I think uh, Psalm 22 would have to be the other one from King David of the messianic statement of, of the, the, this crucified saviour, this dying Messiah. And so Psalm 22 and Isaiah 52, 53 are just brilliant. And it's like they were there. It's like that they were witnessing what was happening there on, on, on Mount Calvary with Jesus dying. So Isaiah says this. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. Folks, you here today are the fulfillment of that prophecy. You're the fulfillment. He will see when he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish. He will be satisfied because Jesus could see us today while he's hanging on, on, on that tree, loving him, believing on him, trusting him, praying, as Pastor Joseph said, you know, that our hearts would be purified so that we can worship him acceptably. We're given a right standing by grace. That doesn't mean we go and live as we want to live. We say, Lord, help me to outwork to live righteously. By your Holy Spirit, enable me to tame that wild beast of the sinful nature that it stays buried. And that your Holy Spirit, who now lives within me, can give me the new impulses and new power and new motivation that I can live as you want me to live. And that we we're today are the recipients of this amazing promise. Isaiah 53.5 tells how Jesus saves us and it's a magnificent statement. He says, he, Jesus, was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. In John chapter 19, we're introduced to Pontius Pilate. And he's a pretty creepy man, the governor of, of uh, Judea. He's not the nicest person in the world. And... Uh, and he has the most challenging prisoner he has ever come across. And he does not know what to do with him. He lets the soldiers actually dress him up as a king of sorts, play acting. These brutal men, just play acting. Purple robe, we'll put on a, give him a crown, and instead of a, they just take a terrible thorn bush and stick it into his scalp crown of thorns, the beatings about the face that he had, tell you what they, what they thought of such a claim. They didn't believe that he was the king of the Jews, the king of the world, the king of the universe. And Pilate says the words that still haunt us today, they haunt the world today. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns in John 19.5, and the purple robe, and Pilate said, look, look, 
here is the man. Look, here is the man. For the rest of eternity, Pilate will be reminded of his own words. How ironic is this, that here standing before him is the true image of God. Here is God in human form. Here is the one who has brought God's wisdom, God's grace, God's power into the world so everyone could see for themselves what God was really like. That's what I love about Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, the four Gospels. As a 17-year-old kid, when I started reading them during the Jesus movement, and uh, I was a pagan, I was anti, I I was kind of like wild boy, but I couldn't put those four Gospels down. And and as I read them, I thought, man, I like him. I like him. I like what he says about God because we all got crazy images of what God is like. And he gets rid of religious jargon. He gets rid of false images. Some of you come from families where you didn't have the best daddy. If my wife could get up here and share, she'd tell you what it's like to come from a, a dysfunctional family with a father who was violent. And that distorts our image. So when we come across that God is his father, for some people it's like, what? My image of father is, is pretty bad. What Jesus did by how he talked and how he acted and how he reacted, how he handled children, how he handled women, how he handled people who sinned, who fell away, we just see he reveals what God our Heavenly Father is like. So when you look in Jesus, you think, that's what God is like. And you love him and you think, oh, now I can look God in the face without guilt and fear and shame because now I see what he's really like. He's a God of justice, yes, he's a, but he's a God of great mercy who offers forgiveness and grace to the worst of sinners. Jesus reveals God as totally just and righteous and perfectly loving, kind and merciful. It flows together. Jesus is the living embodiment of God. He's standing before Pilate, the one who has made the invisible God visible. And now we can grasp God's beautiful nature, perfect nature. The words, here is the man. Hang over the whole chapter 19 as you read it, as Jesus goes to the cross. In Isaiah 52, 53, written 700 years before John chapter 19, before the events of of John chapter 19. And uh, they prophetically describe the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the exaltation of Jesus. Of Jesus, the continuing ministry of Jesus from heaven today through the Holy Spirit in this world. And the central focus of this amazing portion of Scripture is that the innocent servant died in the place of the guilty. It introduces us to the concept of vicarious atonement. What does that mean? Vicarious means standing in the place of somebody. So that as you pray for family members and people that don't know the Lord, you are standing in their place. You're praying vicariously for them. Atonement means where God 
and human beings come together. The cross of Jesus is the bridge between heaven and earth. No one can receive the forgiveness and the grace of God without going through the cross. Where God reveals himself. And when he died, it became dark across the world and, and the, the, the curtain in the temple, it was this thick and about 60 feet high. It was torn from top to bottom so that the Holy of Holies, where nobody could go in there except the high priest. And the high priest had to make sure his sins were covered. Okay? If his sins weren't covered by some sacrifice, he'd die in there. You can't come into the presence of God and touch the ark and, and live. So they used to tie a rope on him. Because if he died, who's going to go in and get him? Not me. Not you. Because we're all going to die. So you could go to the outer court. Yeah, you could go into the holy place. The priest could. Holy of holies. No. That temple was torn. Now God was saying, you know what? You can come in and enjoy my presence because my son said it's finished. And now the price has been paid. There is no barrier between you and God. Just come with repentance and faith. Hallelujah. Amazing. As Jesus dies in our place, his death shines God's light and God's love on our dark and cruel world. And it becomes the only means, folks, of your salvation as we believe on him and personally receive him into our lives. I can't explain the cross. I really can't. I've been a Christian 52 years. I've been thinking about the cross an awful long time. I've read a lot of books about the cross. You say to me, Bill, do you understand the cross? Not really. Not really. <laughs> it's like the Trinity. Do I understand it? Not really. How can there be one God and three persons? God is the Father. God is the Son. God is the Holy Spirit. Hey. Three gods. One plus one plus one equals three. Wrong mathematical equation. It's one times one times one equals one. Do I understand it? Do you understand it? Nobody understands it. We accept it by faith because the scriptures teach it. The cross. How did, I don't understand it. How can all the sins of the world, every single sin, any person committed, past, present, future, Come on, Jesus. What did it look like? I don't fully understand it. There was a great transaction that took place. That is, he hung there between heaven and earth. The father had to turn his back from his son and reject him because he had become sin. And God cannot look on sin. The high priest had to have his sin covered to go into the holy place. So at that moment, that's what terrified Jesus. He'd be separated from his father because he took the sins of the world. Do I understand it? No. Do I accept it? Yes. Have I experienced it? By golly, I have. As a kid, and it's never left me. As I saw him hanging on a cross and I saw it was his love for me. It was not anything I could do to try and save myself. It couldn't anything I could do to earn brownie points with God. It was God who dies in my place and it melts our hearts. It's like a prison. It's like light. We, we can see white light, but, but you can't see the full beauty of light unless there's a prism and you see the magnitude of, of the beautiful colours. Only the cross can reveal the love of God to you. It's not a concept. 
intellectually that I've got to somehow study. You see it, you experience it, you feel it, you realise I am loved like nobody's ever been loved. So much that he dies on a cross for me and it melts your heart and the most you can do is say, Lord, I just, I yield, I surrender. Unconditional surrender of the enemy. That's it. That's what I just unconditionally surrender and say, you're God, I'm not God, I'm a sinner, you're perfect, I'm wrong, you're right. I turn from myself and my sins and I put my trust in the only one who can save me. That's what salvation is. If you haven't experienced it, you can. In a few minutes, we'll pray for you. Look at Isaiah 53.6. It says, The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Sin is a burden that grows heavier and heavier the longer we resist God in our lives. King David in, in Psalm 38.4, he said this, My guilt overwhelms me. It is a burden too heavy to bear. And he goes on, do not abandon me, God. Oh, Lord, do not stand at a distance. My God, come quickly to help me. Oh, Lord, my saviour. We love King David. What an amazing man. But by golly, he had sinned bad. Really bad. He sinned before he was crowned king. When he decided to, out of his reaction to Saul, who was trying to murder him. He becomes a hired gun. He becomes a killer. He hires himself out to the Philistines. He becomes a mercenary. He and his boys, they killed men, women, and we think even children at random. The enemies of the Philistines paid for it. What kind of man was he that he could become a killer? No wonder he felt guilt and fear and shame. He was trained as a killer as a little boy. You think about him. How twisted he was. You never hear of his mum. And when his dad speaks of him, it's like, oh, that little runt, like, he couldn't be the king. And the brothers, they say, what are you doing up here? You are... None of his family ever said anything positive about this little kid. No wonder he was out there in the back sticks with, with the sheep, nursing his anger and his resentment. Why do I say that? Because you tell me, do you know any teenager who's 13, 14, 15, that when a bear comes... And a lion comes, he says, make my day, boys, I'm going to kill you. I'd be running that way. The bear and the lion come to take a little lamb. They're hungry. He's got a hundred of them. What's wrong with them? Give him one. Give him one. He chases that bear. Give me back that sheep. And the bear turns around to kill him and he grabs the bear and he kills it. Same with the lion. You've got to be a little bit twisted on the inside to do that. That's why if you've seen the statue in Florence of King David that Michelangelo did, he's like this. <laughs> and, the, and, and Michael wanted people to figure out, was it before or after? No question, it was before. He is saying, he's got the rocks in his hands. He goes, you uncircumcised Philistine, and you're going to be my breakfast this morning. And he races towards him. He kills him. He's only a kid, then he chops his head off and takes him. That's weird for teenagers to do things like that. <laughs> no wonder when David turned his life to God and found forgiveness and grace, he became the most amazing because he, he who had sinned badly, he knew how to repent even better. And even when he 
raised the money, billions of dollars to build the temple. God said, oh, David, I'm sorry. No, I don't want you to build it. And uh, you've shed too much blood. Even the Lord said, hmm, you've been too much of a killer. I'll let your son do it. He becomes king and he kills another man. A beautiful man. A righteous man. A good man. In fact, when I get to heaven, if King David is there and, and Uriah the Hittite is there, I'll go to Uriah first because I think he's a more noble person. He's an amazing man. You study Uriah. Wonderful human being. David had him murdered so he could steal his wife. He sinned badly, folks. Even as believers, we can sin badly. Some of you have sinned badly. You might say, oh, my guilt overwhelms me. My fear and shame are crippling me. Dig into David and find your repentance has to be more notorious than your sin. You've got to find the grace of God through the cross of Jesus Christ and so that you can look God the Father in the eye and say, I'm forgiven. I know what I was. I know what I did, but I'm forgiven. I'm saved. I'm not going to carry guilt. I'm not going to carry this burden. Some of you are carrying burdens that you shouldn't carry. Jesus carried it for you. King David reached out to God. No wonder he wrote some of those amazing psalms that revealed how grateful he was of the goodness of God and the grace of God in saving him. Folks, you don't have to carry a burden of guilt. and Some of you are carrying a burden of guilt and shame and fear. Don't carry it any longer. As Isaiah wrote, he was chastised and given many stripes and it's that punishment that brings us peace and wholeness. Look at Isaiah 52. Let me just read some of these things. This passage is amazing. If you can read it when you go home in different translations or have it read to you. It says, see my servant. This is Isaiah 52 verse Verses 13, see my servant will prosper. He will be highly exalted. But many were amazed when they saw him. His face was so disfigured, he seemed hardly human. And from his appearance, one would scarcely know he was a man. When we see Jesus, do not think he's going to look like Alexander the Great. You know, beautiful, handsome. He was beaten to a pulp. Isaiah says you can't even recognise his face. They busted his teeth. They busted his jaw. They, 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 they were merciless towards him. That's why he showed them the holes in his hands and the side. That's not going away. If he takes his clothes off and we see him in heaven, it'll be a massacred back and a massacred front. They scourged him, not just whipped him, they scourged him. They'd have little bits of metal and bone and they had to rip out the flesh. And we're going to look at him and go, oh, you did that for me. And you just want to worship and say, thank you, gratitude. Isaiah saw it here. The crucifixion was absolutely brutal. His face was beaten unrecognisable. And yet it says in Isaiah 52, I love this, it gives this image of him, you can't even recognise him, he was so beaten by those Roman executioners. But then he goes on to say, and he will startle many nations. Kings will stand speechless in his presence, for they will see what they had not been told. They will understand what they had not heard. There have been kings and monarchs that have bowed the knee to Jesus. 
King Henry II. You know the story of him and Thomas Becket, the Archbishop of Canterbury? Amazing story. Check it out on Google. Google doesn't lie. It tells you the truth. <laughs> 1170. This king was a bad-tempered man. Actually, he was a good king. Right? He was, he was a fairly good king. The start of the Plantagenet family, the longest-serving monarchs of, of Britain. But he had a bad temper. And Thomas was his best friend. And he says, to control the church, I'll get him as Blackie Archbishop of Canterbury. Well, Thomas got saved. Thomas becomes a, a Christian man. And, and some of the things, he opposed the king. And one day the king's going, oh, that rotten Thomas. Will somebody get rid of that troublesome priest from me? Not meaning to go and kill him, but four of his boys go, ooh, okay, let's go and do it. And they murdered him right in the Cathedral of Canterbury. Do you know the king had to go months later, strip off his clothes, bow before Thomas's tomb. The monks, the priests who were there watching the murder, whipped him as punishment. The king bowed his knee to the king of kings. George the, 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 the third, or George the second, in 1743, when Handel had written the Messiah. Anyone seen the Messiah? You heard the Messiah, the musical? Right, you remember? And he shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. You know, do you want me to sing it? No. <laughs> when the chorus of the Hallelujah chorus, King George II, he stood up. Because it talks about the King of Kings and he being the Lord of Lords and, and here's the King of England, the most powerful ruler in the world, stands up and bows his knee to Jesus Christ and everyone ever since. When you go and see the Messiah, don't you sit down when they do that. You've got to stand up and honour Jesus. The King started that. All the rulers of the world will one day bow their knee to Jesus Christ. That's what he says. He will startle many nations. Isaiah 53 says, Who has believed our report? Our message. To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. This is before he was beaten to a pulp. See, some people think Jesus was a blue-eyed, blonde, Anglo-looking. No. He looked more Melanesian, probably dark-skinned. And you know what? He wasn't handsome. In fact, Isaiah says he's probably a little bit more on the ugly side. Just like you and me. Very few are magnificent looking human species. There's a few. There's a few. I can see a few of you here. Most of us are pretty ordinary. It says that Jesus was not just ordinary, he was less than ordinary. There was nothing in his physical features that you would be attracted to him that's why Judas when he led the cops to the garden of Gethsemane betrayed him with a kiss because the cops would have gone to Peter he was the charismatic one the noisy one he identifies with you in his humanity don't think you're ordinary you say you look in the mirror and go gee I wish I had a smaller nose look at the shrunk of a nose I wish I looked different don't look in the mirror and say I am made in the image of God. And in God's eyes, I am beautiful. Hallelujah. <laughs> Look in the mirror and you thank God for who you are and say, Jesus, he looked worse than me. <laughs> what Isaiah says. He identifies with you. I love this about the Lord. 
He was despised and rejected, it says. A man of sorrows, acquainted with the deepest griefs. Oh. If you've been rejected, it's a terrible. So I feel so deeply for men and women that have divorced. Oh, the pain. But a man chooses to leave his wife to go for somebody else, or a woman chooses to leave her husband. The pain, the rejection, is just cruel. It's awful. I cry with them. It's just brutal when it happens. And uh, he was despised, rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with the deepest grief. Some of you have been acquainted with deep grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses, our infirmities that he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, our transgressions. He was crushed for our sins. Wow. Verse 5 says, he was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said. See, it should have been us that were cast to hell. It should have been us that were crucified. But no, he paid the price. Jesus, folks, was emotionally abused. I, I tend to think he was also sexually abused. I can't imagine, from my reading of brutal executioners who have total power over prisoners, what they do to those prisoners is un, unmentionable. Unmentionable. And forget this thing of him being crucified with a loincloth on him. They crucified him stark naked in front of his mum, in front of the women. Emotionally abused, humiliated. The whole thing was to be a humiliation time. Not just to physically kill them, but to emotionally, psychologically brutalise them, to give a warning to everyone. Don't you cross Rome. You cross Rome, that's what's going to happen to you. For some of you that have been emotionally abused, some of you that have been sexually abused, Jesus understands. He understands that pain. That's why... He brings healing to us. We'll never forget the terrible abuse. But we can be healed, healed of the sting of the sins of others. Not only are our own sins forgiven, but the sins that others have committed against us are healed. Are healed. And he wants to heal some of you today. As you read these passages, to reach out to him and say, Lord, I need healing for that terrible stuff that happened to me. He was humiliated before a hostile, jeering crowd. He was led, it says in verse 7, like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, it says in verse 8, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants. Look at this, that his life was cut short in midstream. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and he had never deceived anyone. He was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave, Joseph Arimathea. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. When his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. Hundreds of millions of people, including you and me. Amen. 
He will enjoy a long life and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. He's alive. He's been alive for 2,000 years in heaven. And he's going to return to this earth and wrap everything up. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. When he looks at you, folks, he is so pleased that you have believed on him, that you have personally received him. And he loves you. He adores you. He says, thank you, thank you, thank you for, for accepting what I did for you. And as you do that, and as you yield to him, power comes in. The power of the cross is experienced and the life of the spirit to help you. Some of you struggle to, uh, regarding sin. You've got bad habits and you're falling over. You can't change yourself. I've tried many times. Only Jesus can change you through the Holy Spirit as you lean into him. See yourself dead, crucified with him and alive, resurrected. And his Holy Spirit will enable you, teach you new habits, encourage you, empower you to be able to overcome. Can we stand together, church? I want to lead you in a prayer and, just, and then just one song. Let's bow our heads and pray. Loving Father, thank you for these amazing passages, John 19, Isaiah 52, 53. Lord, I pray, burn, burn it into us to understand the suffering servant, Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth, that he did it for us. He did it for us. He did it to save us from our sins, to give us the gift of forgiveness, to be able to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from unrighteousness, to give us the gift of eternal life, to give us the, the, the gift of the Holy Spirit to come into our lives. We thank you for this. We thank you for this. As we're in this attitude of prayer, church, what's your response to what I'm sharing today? Is it grateful worship and adoration? Or is it just indifference and apathy? I trust indifference and apathy has been thrown out the door. When Jesus says it is finished, he is saying, I've done it for you, son. I've done it for you, daughter. I've done it for you, young man. I've done it for you, old man. Will you now put your trust in me? Will you turn from yourself and your sins and put your trust in me to save you? The message of the cross is both the wisdom and the power of God that you will see things you've never seen and experience power that you've never had before. As we're in his presence, first of all, with no one looking around, but is there, are there people here that are saying, I, I need to cross the line to faith. I, I don't have the assurance that I'm saved. Pray for me. Put your hand up right now and I'll see it. I, I want to pray for you that you know you need to cross the line. Young man, good on you. Lift it up, young, young lady. Yeah. Cross the line to faith. So I, I want to personally experience the saving grace of Jesus. Others, just lift your hand up right now. If you, if you have not experienced the born-again experience, that you know you, God doesn't have any grandchildren. He's just got children. They've got to be born again. 
They've got to turn from their sins and put their trust in Christ to forgive them. All you folks that have lifted your hands, just, just say this prayer. Perhaps all of us say it together, a reaffirming a salvation prayer. Just say all of us together. Repeat after me. Say, thank you, Jesus, thank you, Jesus. for dying on a cross for me. Thank you for saving me through your death. And I thank you that you're alive, that you rose from the dead and you've sent the Holy Spirit. Forgive me my sins, Lord. I turn from them and I put my trust in you, Jesus, and in your spirit who now comes to live within me. Change my life. Help me now to live as you want me to live. In Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, you who've put your hand up, please see Pastor Joseph and the other, who was up here leading the meeting? Whoever it was, just come and talk to them or talk to, to Kathy and myself. Don't leave. And we'd love to give you something. If you've crossed over the line of faith, don't just go home and say, oh, well, I'm, I'm... do something about it. For the rest of us, as we sing this final song. My prayer is that any indifference and apathy that may have crept in about, oh yeah, I heard about the cross, yeah, 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 Jesus died for me. My prayer was, God, blow them away. Help them to see. John 19, Isaiah 53, that this is the guts of the gospel. And every day, to live a life of thankfulness that you're saved by his grace. Deal with indifference, Lord, and apathy. Get us to be on fire for Jesus, Lord. And I tell you, folks, when you see it, you will want to witness. You will want to share. Witnessing is not like you have to witness. You just want to tell people what you've experienced, the wonder of the cross. God, empower your people to be witnesses with their family and their friends and their workmates and universities and wherever they are. I give you praise in Jesus' name. Let's sing the song and I'm handing back to Pastor Joseph. <laughs>